Morning Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. A few weeks ago I began with a cartoon, and unfortunately it didn't go very well. Nevertheless, I shall venture to try again. On the screen here is the first panel of the cartoon. It is a cartoon by, of Calvin and Hobbes. In case you don't know Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin is a six-year-old boy, and I think many of us can relate to sometimes the behavior of this particular six-year-old boy. But it begins with Calvin at dinner. Look at Dad, calmly eating his dinner as if nothing was wrong. You know that he's obviously done something wrong here. Next panel says, I know him. His dad radar is beeping like crazy. He knows I broke something. He just doesn't know what. He can't nail me until he knows for sure. He'll just wait. I know him. Next panel. He's going to just sit there eating and let me stew in my own guilt. He figures sooner or later I'll crack. Calvin. Next panel. Ah, I did it. I did it. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Uh, pass the... Uh, the father had no idea what was going on. How do you deal with your guilt? Anything like Calvin? I think, unfortunately, many of us don't deal with guilt very well. Some of us are obsessed by our guilt, constantly down on ourselves because of our guilt. Others are just too casual with our guilt. We just pretend as if nothing's wrong. Um, and you know that we don't have the practice, at least in our church or in the Protestant denominations, the practice of confession. The ritual before a priest was a practice, or is a practice still, of Catholicism. And ever since the Reformation, we, who the Reformers, having emphasized the truth that only Christ is our mediator uh, and our advocate when we have sinned, that we in the Protestant denominations no longer practice this confession before a priest. Because through Christ, each believer, the Scripture's clear, each believer can enter the presence of the living God and confess his sins to the one that he has offended, God himself, the one he has sinned against. And through Jesus Christ, we believe we can receive forgiveness from him. And so sometimes we forget that confession is still a necessary and healthy thing also in the Protestant denominations. But so we must exercise this discipline of regular, even daily confession to deal with the sins that we've committed because, let's admit it, you and I commit sins every day. And just because we don't have this practice of going before a priest to do so, we should still practice confession before the living God in the quietness of our hearts to confess to Him what we've done. And when we teach a discipleship class in, uh, at FIBC, we include a unit on confession because it is important that uh, regularly, if not daily, we spend time confessing before the Lord what we have committed in sins. And, and I, in that class, I oftentimes recommend using just the seven deadly sins as a helpful list to go through that list of, of uh, what the seven deadly sins are, uh, pride and envy and anger and lust, uh, sloth and greed, and anyone know the seventh? gluttony, um, to go through that list and just ask the Lord, Lord, have I sinned in any of those areas? Reveal to me if I've been prideful. And then maybe He reminds you of that, that statement you made or that uh, defense you, you put up 
uh, because of your pride, and, and so on through that list, or the Ten Commandments, remembering what they are. So hopefully, you and I will be more consistent after we've learned what the, uh, what the Scriptures say today in Psalm 51, we'll be more consistent with this practice of confession and learn as well what is necessary for us to, to receive the forgiveness uh, and the, uh, the removal of our guilt, um, what we ought to bear in mind. So today, as we look at David's song of confession in Psalm 51, we'll learn at least four truths about confession and sin and guilt. And let me also remind you what's so special about Psalm 51. It is an assurance to us that even the vilest offender can find forgiveness with God. We'll understand a little bit more in a few moments about what David did uh, before this psalm was written, uh, but it is assurance to us that even the vilest offender can find forgiveness and restoration and even blessing. And we need to learn some things about the appeal that David made to understand how we can obtain this forgiveness, this restoration, and blessing. So, without further ado, if you would turn with me to Psalm 51, as we look at the first four verses at first, David's song of confession. Psalm 51, and even before verse 1 begins, it says in the Scriptures that this psalm was for the director of music, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. I'm going to have to stop there first so as to give us this context, because some of you perhaps are very familiar with what happened, maybe others are not familiar at all. But David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then what he tried to do was to cover up that, that sin that he had uh, committed. So, he was supposed to have been on the battlefield because his nation, Israel, had been in battle against Ammon, and he had chosen to linger in Jerusalem. And then so one evening, he was awake, and he began to walk around the roof of his house, and from the roof of his house, he saw a woman bathing and was attracted to her. It should have ended there, but instead he sent messengers to find out and inquire who this person was. Well, the messenger came back. This woman was identified as Bathsheba, now he knew her name, but Bathsheba was also the wife of Uriah. That should have alerted David. David should have stopped there and then and said, oh, okay, she's someone else's wife. But no, despite her being married, David took her and then lay with her. And as things happened naturally, Bathsheba got pregnant and then informed David that she was now pregnant, so David began to try to cover up his sin with her. First, he called her husband, Uriah, off from the battlefield, hoping that Uriah would come home and, of course, spend the night with his wife and have intimate relations, and then, therefore, no one would suspect that the child would be David's and not Uriah's. But, da but Uriah was far nobler than David. Uriah stayed away from home, thinking that his own troops couldn't be at home, so why should I uh, be at home? Well, that plan didn't succeed, so David got Uriah drunk the next night, hoping that, yes, surely if he's drunk, he'll go home, but no, Uriah didn't. So, David sent him back into the battlefield with his own death note, a note that had arranged for the army commander Joab to put Uriah in the fiercest battle line, and then for the army to retreat, to leave Uriah there uh, attacked, and, and ultimately to ensure his death. And now that Uriah had died, then David took Bathsheba as his wife, and then he thought his sin was successfully covered up. 
Before we go on, I think we can first of all learn something about David's sin, because David's sin is an example of this classic pattern of first comes the temptation and then comes the sin, all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve. Eve saw the forbidden fruit, and Eve desired then the wisdom that it was said to offer, and then she took of that fruit and then ate. We have the example of Achan, when the walls of Jericho had tumbled down and they took over that city, all of the plunder was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord by being destroyed. But Achan, as he confessed later, says, I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. Are you noticing the similarity between the pattern of Eve and Achan and David? Seeing first and then desiring and then taking once sin is fully grown. See, temptation to sin only works when it's something sinful or wrong that we actually desire. Because if we don't desire it, then no temptation can, can have us. And the enemy will then use deception to make us believe that what we desire is actually good for us, and that what God desires instead for us is not as good for us. And once we're convinced with that, then the enemy will convince us that if we do commit this sin, there's no harmful consequences that will befall us, especially because it satisfies our desires. And then once we've bought into that lie, then we believe the lie that we can then hide our sin. But here's what Scripture tells us about temptation and sin from James chapter 1, 14 and 15. Each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. What we have to believe in the moment of temptation, as someone has said, is that sin would have few takers if its results occurred immediately. So temptation to sin has this predictable pattern. I saw, I desired, I took. And that's exactly the same pattern that David had. So then Nathan was sent, a prophet was sent to David to confront him of his sin. If you look in 2 Samuel chapter 11, I won't, you don't have to go there today, as we read about the account of David's sin, it says at the end of chapter 11, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So then chapter 12 begins, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan was sent to David to, to, to reveal to David that what he had done was sinful. And Nathan wisely used a parable to basically communicate to David, and I quote from chapter 12, that you have despised the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes. So the sin of David is in itself remarkable. His attempt to cover it up is also remarkable. But what we're going to look at today, what's remarkable about David, is that when he is confronted with his sin, his response is immediate confession, I have sinned against the Lord. Without question to Nathan, David knew he had sinned, he just had to be confronted about it. So now we look at Psalm 51 together. Notice what he writes after Nathan had come to him because he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. First thing I think we should learn about David's confession here is how he took responsibility for his sin. He knows that God's love is unfailing, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And that word there for unfailing love, chesed, is sometimes translated loving kindness or tender mercies or steadfast love. He knows that God's love for him is that kind of a love so that he can ask for mercy for his sin. And he says, according to your great compassion, raham can sometimes be translated mercy or pity, emphasizing that God understands that we are weak and that we fall sometimes. He knows that God is a loving Father with great compassion, willing to blot out His transgressions and wash away His iniquity and cleanse Him from sin. And David uses a variety of words poetically, but to nail the, ham the nail, to hammer the nail on its head, to identify what it is He's actually done. He has transgressed, He is filled with iniquity, iniquity, He has sinned. He has crossed the line. He has done an evil deed, and yes, he wronged Bathsheba, yes, he wronged Uriah, his family, his kingdom, his, but ultimately his sin is against God, because God is the one who gave us the standard of sexual purity, to love your neighbor as yourself, to uphold the value of a man, those kinds of things he had simply set aside for his own pleasure and his own reputation. Because when God says to David, your actions were wrong or sinful or evil, David doesn't try to describe that there's something other than wrong or sinful or evil. And I believe that we too should bear the full responsibility for our sins so that we come to God, not on the basis of any excuse we might come up with, but on the basis of His great compassion and His unfailing love. Have you ever stood before a judge in a court of law? Anyone? I have. <laughs> I've told this story a long time ago. Maybe some of you were here for it, but I know that some of you weren't here for it. But I won't go into a lot of the details. But yes, I went to court for a traffic violation. And I sat there waiting for my case to be called up. And I waited patiently and I listened as the judge began to really harshly, verbally um, reprimand those who had gone into court that same day. Um, I only went because I was told that if they don't have a case against you, in other words, if the arresting officer doesn't appear, uh, then they won't have a case against you, the charges will be dropped, um, and then the insurance won't go up for your vehicle. So I showed up in the hope then that the judge would be merciful but also hoping that there would be no arresting officer present. But the whole time, I was fearful. Um, I knew that uh, I would have to answer for my infraction. The judge was harsh upon someone who had been parked in a handicapped parking space, uh, even though they were not handicapped. My infraction was much milder. It was just a speeding ticket, of course, right? Um, but I knew I would have to rest upon the judge's mercy. And I also could tell by where the policemen were seated in uniforms that my arresting officer wasn't present. So I was gaining hope. 
because I remembered he was African-American and he was rather small, and that didn't describe any of the police officers who were there. So yes, I knew that I would have to bear full responsibility if the arresting officer were there and could bring the case against me. But see, when many of us sin against God, sometimes instead of confessing like David did, we will try to come up with excuses, do everything else other than to agree with God about our behavior being sinful or evil or wrong. But when we deny that our actions were wrong, we're making God to be a liar because He says our actions are wrong. When we excuse our sins and place blame on something or someone else, then we're making God an unrighteous judge because He really should have placed His judgment on someone else. Or when we try to justify our sins, then we're trying to make what was wrong right or seem right, and then we're turning God's standards of right and wrong on their head. No, sin is not judged by the way we see it, but by the way God sees it. So really the only thing we can do is to own up, to take responsibility, to agree with God that our actions or our thoughts or our motives or our words or our deeds, that they were in fact wrong or evil or sinful, and then cast ourselves upon the tender mercies of God and His great compassion. Jesus Himself taught us a parable, didn't He, about a tax collector and a Pharisee one who everyone knew is a sinner versus one who is assumed to be righteous, both coming before the Lord and the Pharisees saying, thank you that I'm not like the others, the robbers, the evildoers, adulterers, and others like this tax collector. But the tax collector, Jesus says, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. See, the first principle we have to learn is we have to take responsibility for our sin. And the Bible does comfort us with a wonderful promise that God stands ready to forgive and to cleanse when we agree with Him about our sin. 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His Word has no place in our lives. So remember that, friends, that God's mercy and grace is available for us when we come agreeing with Him. That's what confess means, to agree with God, to say the same thing as He says about our sin. That's what confession is. We agree with God that what I have done or thought or my motive or my attitude was actually sinful. And then try not to place the responsibility of sin somewhere else, but instead to admit that it was our sin and then to remember that His mercy and His grace doesn't always, doesn't take away the consequence of sin. He doesn't turn back history, but He does take away our guilt. So don't try to pretend before God. I mean, He sees and knows everything, even our heart. So it's foolish to try to pretend that it was really someone else or something else that made me do it. What else about David's song? Let's keep on going in verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. What's David doing here? 
Not only has he taken responsibility for sin, but he's acknowledging the roots of his sin, revealing to us that he understands about the sin nature that's inherent in all of us ever since Adam and Eve. Like Paul wrote in Romans, that all of humanity is under sin. And just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. In other words, I sin because I am a sinner. Many people think I'm a sinner because I sin. No, I sin because I am a sinner. And I need to be redeemed and saved from the inmost parts and only the Holy Spirit can transform me from the inside out. Because, see, God is interested in the condition of our heart, not just in our outward behavior. He's not just interested that we don't commit adultery with someone. He's interested that we don't lust after someone who we're not married to. He's not just interested that we don't actually physically kill someone or murder them. He's interested in that our heart might hate someone enough to want to kill someone. And God desires truth in the inmost parts. And you know, the law was never meant to be the complete revelation of God. The law was meant to show us our sinfulness, to show us this is God's standard, and to show us how far short we fall. Then God continued to reveal to us Christ and the purity of His life, and to show us then also a Savior who could then take our sins upon Himself and then give to us His righteousness. I, if anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And just as David says, surely you know my inmost parts. You know I was sinful from my birth. Only the work of God can cleanse a person from the inside out. And he uses this imaginary uh, or imagery common to his day about hyssop being used at the Passover. That branch was used to uh, sprinkle the blood of the lamb, the, the atonement of the lamb upon the doorposts and lintels. And so, you and I too, not only should we bear the responsibility, but seek to have God change us from the inside, the root of our sin, because sin is born from the desire to satisfy our flesh, but righteousness is experienced as an effort to satisfy the Spirit. There's a wonderful message from Jill Briscoe many years ago that I was listening to, where she describes for us as well the three kinds of persons out there, the natural person, the spiritual person, and the carnal person. What's the difference? Well, the natural person is the one who does not obey God or His Word because the natural person has never been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But the spiritual person then is one who has believed in Jesus Christ for his salvation, received Him for his uh, salvation and experience regeneration, and then thereby obeys God's Word in the power of the Spirit, overcoming the desires of the flesh. But then there's also the carnal person, and that is the person who has believed in Christ, received the Spirit, experienced regeneration, but is nevertheless being obedient to his or her flesh, the desires that the flesh wants to be satisfied. And if you and I are to be God's people, then first of all, we have to be transformed from the inside by the Spirit of God, by faith when we receive Jesus Christ as Savior. But then also we have to live by faith, live by the power of the Holy Spirit each and every day. And when we're given a choice to satisfy either the flesh or the Spirit, to then satisfy the Spirit. But if you're here as a natural person, one who has not obeyed God's Word because you've never been regenerated by God's Spirit, then I urge you 
I appeal to you to confess your sins because there is a Savior willing to save you. To admit your guilt before God and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, not for His sins but yours, and then receive the forgiveness and the cleansing that God offers. And those of you who are spiritual, those of you who are regenerated, living by the power of the Holy Spirit, let the Spirit reveal to you the areas of disobedience. What areas are there? Are they in your words or your deeds or your attitudes, perhaps your motives, or even your thoughts? Let's continue in David. Not only was David responsible for his sin, he acknowledged the root of his sin, and then he says in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. See, David acknowledges that really you can only have joy and gladness when you're on good terms with the Holy God, when that relationship has been restored. Do you know the huge difference between Christianity and all other religions? The difference is that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. It is a relationship with a loving Father who longs to be in an intimate love relationship with you and me. And what hinders that love relationship is our sinfulness. When we disobey Him, that relationship gets destroyed by sin, and you can only experience that real lasting joy when that relationship with God has been restored. And you and I who are Christian believers, we don't lose our sonship or daughtership. We don't lose the adoption that we have, but we do lose the intimacy when we sin. And so we have to be concerned more about our relationship with God than anything else. Now, I know if you're like me, Oftentimes, there's other things that concern you, your future, how your children are doing. You're concerned about your health. You're concerned about your security, how effective you may be in ministry or at work or wherever else. Those are things that naturally you're concerned with. But how concerned are you with the separation that comes in the intimacy between you and God when you sin? Because if we truly were that concerned about our intimacy with God, then confession would be a daily activity for us. We would daily be thinking, Lord, I want that intimacy again with you. I feel so far away from you. So above all other things, let our desire to be intimately related with our Heavenly Father receive our greatest attention. See, David was, of course, concerned that, David would, that God would remove His Spirit from him because David lived in an era when, when the Holy Spirit would come upon a person, they might speak or prophesy, but then the Holy Spirit would leave a person. Saul was prophesying when the Holy Spirit was upon him, but then when he had sinned, the Holy Spirit left him. And also David was concerned that God might reject him, cast him away from his presence, and take his Holy Spirit from him. We have the promise of the New Testament, however, that the Holy Spirit is like a seal, guaranteeing that we will one day receive our inheritance in heaven. So we don't have to pray like that, we don't have to hope that God doesn't take His Holy Spirit away from us, but what we do have to hope is that our intimacy isn't ruined because we have been tempted to sin and fallen for it. 
And then one last point about David's song. Let's look at verse 13. David's commitment here. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. See, really, what we need after we have confessed our sins is also a commitment to then afterwards live rightly. That's what true repentance is. It means I'm going to turn away from my sinful habits and I'm going to adopt new habits habits that are pleasing to God because they are in obedience to what the Holy Spirit requires of me. And only when we repent, as David knows, only then can we have pure and true worship. See, he lived at a time when you still had to sacrifice bulls and goats. And if he were to continue in his unconfessed sin, then the offerings and sacrifices of the temple would be purely lip service to him or to God. Well, as we repent, it means we change our ways and commit ourselves to right living. It's not just to, enough to be forgiven of our sins. We have to also repent of them, turn away from wicked and evil ways. And when we confess our sins and are cleansed of unrighteousness, then we can worship God in truth like He desires. So, the other aspect of coming to the Lord and asking for forgiveness that we need to learn here is to be committed in our pursuit of right living you know that you don't change a habit simply by avoiding what you used to do. You have to build new habits. I think you and I know that anyone who's tried to go on a diet, you know, you can't just not look at cakes, right? Because all of a sudden, everything you look at looks like a cake, right? And all you think about is cake. And you know, I'm, I'm not eating cakes this month, no sugars for me. But everything looks like a cake. Now, I, I have to have a, you know, well, Think about a plan of what you're going to pursue, a proper exercise regimen instead. So how will you pursue sexual purity? How will you pursue meekness? Or um, how will you keep silent to avoid gossip? Your hatred of sin, as someone has said, depends on your degree of love toward God. So as I close, I want us to be, to to be mindful of what David had done in his psalm. He took responsibility. He acknowledged the root of his sin. He knew that he had to restore the relationship with God, and he also recognized that there had to be some real repentance, because forgiveness of sin is available, but we have to own up and fess up and look up and change up. That's what I get from Psalm 51, David, who had sinned so gravely as to commit adultery and then murder, that he could find forgiveness from a merciful God. O oh Lord, have mercy, mercy upon me, a sinner. One of the favorite things I think of that is, uh, describes a strong church says the marks of a strong church are wet eyes, bent knees, and broken hearts. Will that be us? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its truth. And those of us here who continue to beat ourselves up with guilt, I pray that we will have found in the truth of Your Word the truth about the forgiveness that's available. 
about the atonement that has been made and about the newness of life that we can have through Jesus Christ so that we will stop beating ourselves over with the same guilt that we've already been forgiven of. And I also pray, Lord, that those of us here who've been so casual about our sin, who continue in it knowing that it's wrong and still don't even think about our relationship with you, Lord, I pray that we would become more sensitive, that we would be a church that has wet eyes and bent knees and broken hearts, because we know that our sin was so offensive that even Jesus, your Son, had to die on the cross for it. Lord, I pray that the words of David would be an encouragement and a challenge to us all, and I pray that you would find in us what is pleasing to you because of our willingness to admit our sin and to come to you and cast ourselves upon your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your compassion and your unfailing love. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.